The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 56, Analog Footsteps, May 29th, 2014. So, Jeff, when was the last time you used an analog computer for engineering work? Wow. that's uh, That's been a while. I mean, at, at one point, I had my slide rule, I suppose, as an analog computer. And uh, when I was in school as an undergrad, we, uh, we had these big uh, analog computers, patch boards, that had the uh, op amps behind them, and, and you could simulate a, a mass damper system, you know, uh, uh, connecting to the right uh, inputs with... Uh, capacitors and resistors, but I think that's probably about the last time I used anything that we call an analog computer, although I'm always amazed by the fact that we're so used to everything being digital, but at some level, it's all analog still, right? Yeah. I hate to say that. Sadly, I think I've actually used an analog computer, at least an analog multiplier recently. Okay. Not wi- not willingly, I should say. Oh, and so what was the decision? Why would you use the uh, an analog multiplier? Uh, replacing parts, replacing, uh, replacing legacy components in, in equipment. Ah, we're going to do what we've always done. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) Well, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, behind all this, this revolution we have in, in digital electronics, it's still at, at some level, it's still analog, right? You know, there's. The voltage has to be some level for us to consider the bit one and, and some level for us to consider it a zero. And uh, so we've got an entire history of, of analog electronics that contribute to what we're able to do in uh, today's uh, digital world. As I was reminding somebody today, is if, you get, if you get your digital signals going fast enough, eventually they become analog. So we sort of go full circle from, from analog to digital and back to analog again? Yes, it's like asteroids. It just goes off one side of the board and comes on the other. <laughs> I like that analogy. It's a pretty good one. <laughs> so, Carmen, I understand we have someone this evening that can tell us a little bit about the history of analog electronics. Yes. Our guest tonight is an application manager at uh, Linear Technology and uh, the creator of the blog Analog Footsteps, Todd Nelson. Todd, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. Uh, We're happy to have you on. Um, So just to get get our listeners familiar with you, what got you interested in engineering and how did you come about working in the semiconductor industry? At at best, it's accidental. As a kid, I was interested in cars and, you know, classic good math and and, and science. So I went off to engineering school really to build cars and – Wound up working at General Motors with a mechanical engineering degree and at that point didn't like it. So uh, I did what any good student would do. I went back to school and went <laughs> for a master's degree in electrical engineering with the idea of doing control systems, you know, electromechanical controls. And I needed work and a friend of mine who I went to college with worked at a semiconductor company and he got me in. And from there, just one thing led to another and I'm still here. Wow. So did you, did you start yourself, uh, you know, the path is work in applications or tests and move on to design, or did you have more of a non-typical career there? Uh, definitely non-typical. 
I started in strategic marketing in an automotive group because that sort of made sense as a segue into the company. And then uh, went into more product marketing. And while I was getting my master's degree, uh, then I moved into applications and then moved out again to, to marketing and then into design and now back into applications. So it's kind of a wandering path. Yeah, you're all over the place and especially jumping fence there over to the marketing side of things. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. You know, when, when you're an engineering student, you have no idea that an engineer could do marketing. It just seems like the total antithesis. But uh, <laughs> at, at least in the semiconductor industry, uh, marketing is a fairly technical job. You know, your end customer is another design engineer, so you have to speak the language and be able to, to help them out. So you have to sort of think like an engineer. So it worked, but I couldn't stay there very long. And I kept drifting back to the other side of the fence, do applications and that kind of back and forth along that border. And was, was this a small non-existent semiconductor company now, or are they still around? Uh, it was national semiconductor. Yeah, oh, it, okay. it was a fairly big one. I suppose technically they, they're non-existent now uh, with the merger with TI. They live out in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> So, Todd, a lot of times we ask uh, our guests whether they thought about other fields of engineering than the one they, they chose, but you've chosen two. Any ability to sort of compare and contrast between the fields of mechanical and electrical engineering? Um, oh, boy. Uh, I didn't really do mechanical long enough to, to really say that. Um, you know, I, I remember there was a course that I took that uh, was the big eye-opener for me when I was an undergrad. Mm -hmm. And we called it systems, but I think a lot of different schools have different names for it. But it was that one class where they stripped out the variables and they they broke everything down. You know, electrical is these variables, but these equations. Mechanical is these variables, but the same equations. Thermal mm -hmm. is these variables, but the same equations. Right. And suddenly everything was like... Uh, open. It's like, wow, it's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's all just systems of differential equations. Yeah. And, and I remember in grad school when I was doing controls, uh, it was all double E's uh, in the class with me. And the professor put on one of the tests some pulley and spring and damper system that had some magic box that converted it to volts and current and then into a control system. And then there are the basic uh, questions on the, on the system. And you could just hear the room say, hey, wait a minute, we're not supposed to be able to do this. This has got mechanical <laughs> stuff in it. And I was done by then. Yeah. Now, when you were doing this, did you did you know that you wanted to go into controls? That is, were you, you taking mechanical with an interest towards electrical at the same time? Yeah, that, that was the plan. Try to not waste, uh, you know, the education that I already had, but try to lever both of it and you know, I always liked gadgets and gears and levers and, and things like that. Um, so I always kind of wanted to stay with that. Um, so it turns out I haven't, but that was the plan anyway. <laughs> Neat. So uh, what, what brought you jumping around a little bit here, uh, you know, from national over to linear tech? Was it the merger or you just move over before then? Uh, it was a typical Silicon Valley thing. I just picked up the phone one day and there was a recruiter 
asking me if I would consider another job. And I said, well, what is it? So it, it sort of went from there. Um, obviously being from national, I knew, uh, of linear and I knew plenty of people who knew that re- knew them really well. And the reputation at the time, you know, this is 1995, uh, was that linear was a really difficult place to work. Lots of screaming and yelling and a lot of intensity. And I'm not really that type of personality. And most of the people at National who, who knew Lanier, when I asked them their opinion, they said, yeah, don't go there. You'll hate it there. They'll chew you up and spit you out. It'll just be an awful scenario. You'll be right back here. <laughs> but uh, there was one guy who said, uh, well, who are you going to work for specifically? And I told him the guy's name and he said, you'll be fine. So, so that guy, incidentally, was Tom Redfern who was oh, okay. one of the early guys with linear technology and he'd worked there for a long time and then left and went back to, to national. Mm-hmm. So I certainly trusted his opinion. Um, he was not the, the fist pounding swearing kind of guy. He was pretty even keel. And so I, I figured, figured he wouldn't send me into a, you know, a grinder where I'd get chewed up. So turns out he was right. I've been really happy there. Um, you know, there were lots of times where, especially in the first couple of years, um, you know, this is in the, the run up to the dot com era, uh, when, when linear was still pretty small. Um, they were like, in terms of revenue, they were about $250 million a year at the time. And now they're, you know, like a billion plus, so quite a bit bigger. But at the time, you know, it still had that feel of an aggressive startup company. So there was an awful lot of pressure on things. And I remember lots of meetings, you know, within my first couple of weeks, I was presenting to, to Bob Swanson, who's the CEO, and Bob, Bob Dopkin, who is the co-founder and the CTO, and, you know, pretty heated reactions to things that I didn't think were controversial. And so it was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, a very aggressive learning curve, but, you know, I never felt, uh, never felt that it was not the place for me. You know, it just mm-hmm. was a, a pretty good place. There wasn't any politics, no bureaucracy. It was just straight to the point. Um, the things that people got angry about were when we were diverging off the strategy, you know, we're, we're here to make analog. We're here to make uh, high performance and, and, we're here to do things that other people can't do. And if it feels like we're slipping from that, then people got really upset and got some course correction. Were there, were there always people walking in trying to do, you know, high end digital stuff and arm micros? And- no, no, not too often. You know, there occasionally we, we drift a little bit into that, but we, we always stayed pretty close to what, uh, what it means to just be an analog company. Of course, you know, we had, data converters. Uh, that was what mm-hmm. Tom Redfern brought into the company. And so there's always some digital element to that. Um, there have been plenty of times over the years where we needed a microcontroller core or something like that. And, you know, they're, they're snuck into a lot of our products. It's probably not visible from the outside, but you just can't build things today without having a lot of digital content in there somewhere. Yeah. Did that take a lot of, uh, 
a lot of getting used to it linear. You know, some of the old timers who had been there for years and years to get them to accept the fact that, yes, you do need this digital core inside your otherwise analog chip. Um, a little bit, yeah. There, there's plenty of people when you talk about we're going to license this IP, drop this block in here, and then we can just program it to do this or that. And, you know, the old timers will look at it and, you know, they can design digital, but they just don't do much of it. Um, so they look at that core and there's like, you know, 25,000 gates in there or something. <laughs> and they say, you know, we can do that with like 40 transistors. <laughs> yeah, but the validation work that goes in to make sure those 40 transistors do it properly is... <laughs> yeah, and, you know, those 40 transistors do that one thing. You can't then reprogram it to do something else. Yeah. You know, that's where things get easy. But they had long ago accepted the benefit of, of digital trim algorithms. You know, a, a part, like the simplest part that a company like Linear makes is a reference. You know, theoretically, it's just three pins. And, you know, there's an awful lot of trimming in there to make that thing uh, have a very low TC. And, you know, that's all digital now. Yep. Yeah, we have the same similar trim methods at uh, Intersil as well. It's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that you wouldn't see from the customer aspect of things. Yeah. You know, in the small world aspect of things, Intersil, I remember their, uh, I forget what kind of architecture it was, but uh, they had... Uh, purchased Zycor and mm -hmm. got some reference technology from them that was E-squared and highly digital controlled. Um, so the building where Zycor was is where I sit now, because that was right next door to Linear. And oh, really? Yeah, once they moved all those people out and emptied the building, we eventually uh, bought the building and occupy that now. <laughs> huh, small world. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, the building uh, on the corner, which, you know, you guys don't have a map in front of you, but um, the building on the corner used to be the headquarters for LSI. And so one of the guys that I wrote about in, in the Guru post, um, Nello Sevastopoulos, uh, sat in what used to be Wolf Corrigan's office, the CEO and founder of LSI. Hmm. For those listeners who haven't been to Silicon Valley, all of this is within like a half-mile stretch of road. <laughs> yeah, if you've got a good arm, you can throw a rock at all of them. Yeah, I, I <laughs> always heard stories about that. But then last year when I was finally out there for Intersil's internal engineering conference, you know, I, I walked from our hotel to Intersil, and it was only a mile, but I passed half a dozen companies who I had, you know, heard of, you know, Linear Tech, and I didn't know it was Zilker or LSI either, but... Come to find out, I was also around the corner from half a dozen other companies. And it's it's incredible once you see it. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I grew up in Michigan and, and I worked in the auto industry. And, you know, when you work in Detroit, uh, you know, Detroit's a pretty broad city, very expansive. And, you know, Ford and Chevrolet are nowhere near each other. You know, they're just miles and miles apart. And so that part of town is Ford town and this part of town is Chrysler and that part of town is, is Chevrolet. <laughs> and so to come here and, you know, just be driving down a block and it's like, well, there's AP, there's Intel, there's AMD, there's like everybody right here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, well, how do you keep these people apart? <laughs> you don't, everybody's intermingled. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> when I was out there recently, uh, the question I had was, 
how much of the buildings when you see the you know linear tech hewlett packard when you see these big nameplates how much tech work is actually done and how much of that is the corporate headquarters um i can't speak i know for, it varies by country just kind of a not country company yeah so for us um uh, an awful lot of the design work is done right here uh in in milpitas where our headquarters is um we have remote design centers everywhere so wherever there's people who design analog will put up a building and and hire people in in locations all around the world you know, we've got them in Munich, we've got them in Boston, uh, we've got them in Raleigh, if anyone if Interstill is listening. Um, <laughs> I don't know anybody. But, <laughs> but um, certainly there, there's an awful lot done right in Silicon Valley. And so people stay here and they keep a lot of engineering here. Do, do the design centers typically have a focus? You know, like this one does power, this one does RF, this one does bread and butter analog parts, or does everybody kind of work on everything? Um, to some extent, they're kind of specialized. You know, it depends on who was there before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we haven't acquired anyone except this company recently called Dust Networks. Um, but, you know, with the design centers, you know, there's um, some RF people that we got in the Colorado area because uh, there was RF companies there. You know, there's power companies where people were disgruntled, and so we have mostly power in, in other design centers. So it sort of works out that way. Is LT fabless? Uh, no. No, from the beginning we've had our own fabs, and that's kind of a secret sauce. You know, we hmm. get to tweak the processes to do exactly what we want. Um, we do do a bit of foundry work, um, you know, for processes that... Uh, you know, where our foundry is suitable, uh, but it's a small percentage of what we do. So with all these acquisitions and, you know, the, the change in the analog market, having to incorporate so much digital, does linear tech still have that uh, rough and tumble atmosphere that you were talking about back in the 90s or if things smoothed out a little bit? Uh, it's, it's a little smoother. It's a little, um, and I, I think that has to happen. You know, there's still, uh, I think the culture... Um, is is still the company is still built around engineers. So if uh, an individual engineer has an idea that he feels passionate about and wants to pursue, even if it's a microcontroller, um, <laughs> you know, we'll we'll generally find a way to to make that work and support him. Um, every once in a while, it's you know a brand new thing that hasn't really been done anywhere, and. You know, we're not exactly sure how it's going to pan out, but we, we take a lot of bets and some of, them, some of them work and some of them don't. But it's still, you know, it, that makes uh, the engineers want to stay here because they know, you know, the company will support them when they want to do something crazy. Seems like a good way to run a company. <laughs> Tremendous amount of freedom. Yeah. Well, you have to be right more often than you're wrong. So... <laughs> <laughs> So as long as, you know, you're generating revenue and, and making good profit and continuing to do that, then you can take risks inside the company. So, yeah. And I guess we're fortunate in the analog space that, uh, you know, a lot of the analog chips have a really long lifetime. You know, we've got parts that we made in the early 80s, like LT1001, you know, mm-hmm. is still selling because there's still places for it. And, 
so that uh, you know the investors don't fix it. That's right. You know, there's <laughs> there's parts that they just need voltage. You know, so a, a new you know twelve nanometer part isn't the answer. So you still go back to those old processes that have big voltages, and they they just keep going. So the investments you know long been returned and. The rest of it just continues to generate profit and doesn't take much support in terms of revenue or manpower to keep it going. Mm -hmm. uh, the older processes don't get expensive to try to maintain, given that the equipment starts to go, you know, non-supported, if you will. Um, you know, it, it was it was funny to me, probably funny to everybody. Um, when I joined the company, we had four-inch wafers, you know, which had long, long been forgotten and uh, we had to move we had a new fab and we had to close the old fab um, and so everything new had to migrate over to six inch and I guess the story for all the four inch stuff is they were buying the equipment used you know so whenever people had left that technology they, they picked it up for pennies on a dollar and so a lot of it happened that way. So we, you know, when you're on the leading edge, everything costs billions of dollars. And when you're on the trailing edge, you pick up used stuff. We're still picking up used testers and, and things just to, to keep things going. But, uh, since we do our own processes, um, you know, when we move to six inch and eight inch, we can recreate that old process on the new equipment. So we've still got seven micron stuff that we run in modern fabs. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, because now, you know, with these big wafers, um, if we've got some old part that's still clicking along kind of at a, a slow pace, we might run one fab run a year. You know, and that because those wafers are so big, you know, we get enough dye <laughs> off them that we just build one run and then stick it in dye bank. <laughs> well, that's one of the benefits of owning your own fab there yep yeah it's hard to get the foundry to do that for you oh yeah yeah good luck getting tsmc to change their lines out for one wafer <laughs> yeah because you want to run one mm -hmm. oh they will do it they will do it gladly and they will make you pay for it yeah <laughs> at that point you're better off just not even doing the wafer <laughs> yeah that will be the most expensive wafer you've ever made yeah. Now, is this fab local to where you are so you can get there easily? Um, one of them is, and another one is in Camas, Washington, so it's not too far away. Oh, okay. So uh, working at a company like Linear, you know, we, we touched a bit on the, the history of it. You know, you mentioned some of the, the gurus of analog, and, you know, you got parts dating back to the 80s. Um, so you're, you're steeped in all this analog history. Uh, it was when you started working for them that you got an interest in kind of chronicling this history or have you always had an interest in being an armchair historian um you know i've always kind of been interested in history uh, except when i had to study it in class for whatever reason that's just <laughs> it's, it's a good way to kill your interest right there yeah a 10 page paper yeah but i always had an interest in it um but it wasn't until rather recently that i realized that there is living history all around me where i work mm -hmm. and you know, that started more in a response to um, to Jim Williams and uh, his death, you know, because I, I knew him and, yeah. you know, and he was connected to all these other guys. And 
you know, I, I started to read books that were written on history. You know, you read the stuff about Fairchild and Bell Labs and the Transistor and things like that were kind of interesting to me. And occasionally there'd be some little snippet about people I knew. And I thought, wow, that's weird. You know, this is history, which I'm used to being you know, centuries old. And mm -hmm. here's a guy who's still alive who was part of it. Um, but, you know, I, I enjoyed the, the prank stories and, you know, those kind of funny things that don't ever get written down. And I started to think, yeah, I'm, I'm not reading enough of these things. I wish someone would write those things down. And I was thinking, I should ask Jim Williams to do it. He's, he's a great writer, and he knows all these people, and he was part of a lot of the pranks. Um, but then he died, and, you know, I didn't have the opportunity. So I thought, you know, what, what can I do? Who can I get to write it now? And I remember I went to um, uh, this event at the Computer History Museum where they had a panel discussion, you know, just remembering Jim Williams people we'd uh, worked with a lot. And uh, Greg Kovacs is a professor at Stanford, and he was one of the, the panelists. And I was talking to him briefly afterwards, and I think I mentioned, you know, something about I wish someone would write all this stuff down. And, you know, one of the things he had said to me once he saw that I was interested um, was, you know, do you want to come to Stanford and, and teach a class or something? And you know, that was just so far away from where my head was at, I couldn't even digest the question. Um, but he, he did say, well, you know, if you want to write, if you want something written, just write it. And I, I thought, all right, I'll write a book. How hard could that be? <laughs> so what's what, a long weekend's worth of work? He's <laughs> like, I've got a keyboard. I could do this. Um, and, you know, couple couple weeks into trying to collect uh, sources and stuff and I said there's no way I'm writing a book this thing's impossible so then I thought oh I'll just write a blog anyone can write a blog and apparently that is true um, <laughs> so that that's when it started I just started saying all right here's a little snippet of a story I'll write it down mm-hmm I have no idea if anyone reads it you know now I do I can see the stats apparently there's you know couple dozen people who read these things so I, I was hooked once i happened to stumble on your site you know i was like oh what's this story on bob bob widler and you know there i was <laughs> yeah so it's been fun you know I, I i like doing the research i like digging this stuff up um it's nice that there are people that i i know personally who can verify some of these things and add a little color to it mm -hmm. and so it's it's been fun yeah. Has a lot of your research been, uh, you know, on the internet or are you digging through some dusty back closet of linear trying to find, you know, some article someone had written or a, an old staff file that's declassified or something? <laughs> um, almost all of it's on the internet. Um, you know, when I was doing the posts on the five gurus, uh, some of those guys, there's nothing on the internet on them. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard of a few of them. It's, they're not the big names you normally hear about. Yeah. And so for those, you know, I was lucky enough that they're still around. Um, there's enough people that know them that can put me in touch with them. And, you know, having a Bob Dotkin as a resource to me, can you put me in touch with Dave Fulliger? It's like, yeah, he, he can do that. You know, he knows yeah. him. Yeah, he's probably got an impressive Rolodex he can look back on. Yep. And, you know, the, the funny thing, 
Dobby as an example, but you know, all the guys are kind of the same way, is they enjoy that. You know, they enjoy being the connected one. They enjoy being the guru. They enjoy talking about uh, things they've done. They enjoy, everyone likes talking about themselves. I suppose that's why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just for uh, a quick clarification, you know, I've, I've read your blog. Obviously, Analog is right up my alley, but we have listeners from all disciplines. You keep talking about the gurus. Um, who? What, can you just give us an overview about that series of articles? Sure. Uh, actually, I was worried that there was a political correctness problem with the phrase gurus, um, and I'm still not entirely sure. Uh, but anyway, the, when, when linear technology was founded, they were a bunch of guys who defected from National Semiconductor. And so right away they start designing chips. And as a, an advertisement, they didn't have any chips yet to advertise, but they wanted to advertise their name and start building some brand recognition as, as we would call it today. I don't know what they called it back then. So they had attracted a bunch of designers who were legends in the industry. And so they put together this ad, magazine ad, you know, for our listeners, that's paper with a staple in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> and they had, you know, mugshots of, of all the guys. And they said, what are these uh, analog gurus been up to? And so there's Bob Weidler, there's Bob Dobkin, there's Carl Nelson, um, George Erty, and uh, who was that? Who did I miss? Uh, anyway, they're, they're Carl Nelson. Yeah, Carl, Tom, George, Dobby, and and, um, and Weidler. Is it? It's, yeah, it so is Weidler, not Widler. Yeah, yeah, it's Weidler. Straight. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I did some ancestry research and I'm, I'm guessing, I, I can't prove it yet, but I think that, um, you've probably seen Weidler, which is W E I D L E R. Um, that probably goes back to the same kind of root, you know, with the German language, the, the W is pronounced like it's a V Yeah. and everything else is kind of up to what, what happened at Ellis Island when they tried to write their name down. <laughs> so so anyway back to the the guru ad um they they put this ad out that basically said all these famous people work for us and so watch this space for the products that these guys will design next because you know they were they were that big a rock star that just their name and their face was enough to make people pay attention wow hope i can get that good someday <laughs> well one of the things i asked uh most of the guys was, you know, does this rock star status still happen today? How did it happen back then? Why did it happen? Mm -hmm. You know, because you're circuit designers. You're not actually rock stars. And, you know, it seems like back then, one, the, the pool was very small. There just weren't that many companies and there weren't that many engineers. And the, the biggest show on the planet was the ISSCC show. Um, you know, every year and it started in Philadelphia, but it moved out to San Francisco. Yeah, that's the solid state circuit conference, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. And so these guys themselves would go every year and, and present papers on what they were doing. And, you know, so why did they would go up and present his band gap? And, you know, they were much 
less secretive than I think they are now. I think now there's probably a, always a bit where you're holding something back. You don't want to put too many secrets out there. Mm-hmm. But back in that era, you know, there, it was much more of a promote the technology and, and the customers will come and, and seek you out. So these guys were presenting themselves and they'd come year after year and do amazing things. And so people got to, to start to look for them. And I think that's mostly where it came from is, is that particular conference. I think one of my favorite stories out of that, I think it was the ISCC was, uh, when Widor presented about why you couldn't do a, a three terminal voltage ref, voltage regulator. And then a few months later turned one out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Classic. Isn't it? Yeah. Misdirection there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so have you worked with all, uh, all five of the gurus? I know you mentioned, uh, Bob Dobkin and I think, was it Red, Redfern? Yeah. Redfern, I actually worked with at national. I never worked with him at linear when he was at linear. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tom, I knew fairly well and Dobkin, I know reasonably well, um, with, with working at linear cause he's still there. He's still very active. He's involved in, in pretty much everything technical that goes on in the company. Is it true? He still has his own bench that he works at. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how often he's out there, but yeah, he, he still likes to, to solder things. I see him taking things apart more often than I see him <laughs> building things. But. That's, that's always more fun. Yeah, like whenever the new iPhone comes out, there's one dismantled on the bench. <laughs> um, so Carl Nelson and George Erty were at Linear at the time that I joined. Um, I didn't work with them directly too much, you know. So when I contacted them, I had to reintroduce myself, and you know they remembered me, so that was nice. Um, of course, I never worked with Bob Weidler. Uh, mm-hmm. He he died before I came out this way. So I wanted to ask uh, Todd, they say that uh, pilots to this day have sort of a, a chatty draw when they're making announcements in the uh, in the air because of uh, Chuck Yeager, uh, <laughs> who was the first pilot to, to, to break the sound barrier and was famous and everybody wanted to be like him. And I wondered if there were characteristics you noticed in, in these uh, uh, gentlemen from uh, LT that you thought that other analog designers would try to copy and, and uh, emulate. Um, you know, I, I've kind of always thought that, uh, I'll, I'll use the word eccentricity, um, that Bob Weidler exhibited, uh, gave everyone after that, the, the freedom to just be whoever they were, uh, you know, no matter how offensive that may be. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you produce results like he did, I guess you can get away with it. Yeah. Yep. And you know, it, it's, uh, almost impossible to manage someone like him. Uh, Dobkins says he was unmanageable. Bob Dobkin was in charge of managing him for a while. <laughs> and he just basically didn't uh, just <laughs> let him do what he did. Um, but, you know, Dobkin was a little wild, too. A lot of the, the stories that are attributed to Weidler, um, Dobkin was nearby, probably egging him on. And, <laughs> and you know, never got any of the the guilt or was never accused of anything. Uh, so I used the, the phrase unindicted co-conspirator. <laughs> but he, he got his own, didn't he? Once he became a manager, didn't they steal cycles from his clock and make it run backwards? Uh, and oh everything? yeah. Yeah. When you're a prankster, you become a target of pranks. 
<laughs> yeah, but you know, there, there's a, clearly in in the stories. You know, uh, I think there's, I, I think it's still like in Genesis. I can't remember, but there's a an interview of Dobkin and Jim Williams. They they filmed them together, so they're chatting back and forth. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm aware that you know when it came to pranks, you know there was always an escalation, and you know for like me and my brother, it, it escalated until one of us you know drew blood on the other one and had to go go to the <laughs> hospital. But with the the electronic pranks, it just became more and more clever and more and more undetectable. Would you actually go and you know half half sabotage someone's board? I think I remember. Uh... Someone's soldering in a ferrite bead on one of Jim Williams' boards to cut his bandwidth down on uh, <laughs> Comparator, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that was Carl Nelson who did that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, of course, never would. I wasn't in that circle. I wasn't clever enough to figure out how to sabotage their circuit, let alone figure out how it's supposed to work. <laughs> well, it's really easy to sabotage if you just break it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's, you know, that doesn't garner their approval mm-hmm. and would, would it always be internal pranking or would they you know try and prank guys across the street at national or intercell or you know any of these other companies uh well apparently uh, they would certainly go after other companies um story that i read uh when when analog devices came out with cmos dax uh, somebody uh, i think probably at national put a box filled with cmos you know, the green poopy <laughs> stuff from the ocean <laughs> and put it in there and, and sent that. And I said, love your CMOS DAX. And then someone else put an old, uh, half eaten McDonald's Big Mac and some, you know, big DAC attack or something like that. So yeah, they, they'd banter back and forth. They, they kind of all knew each other and it was all good. Nice. Does that kind of thing still go on today or has that died down a little? Uh, I think it's died down a lot. Yeah, I don't see so much of that. I, I think a lot of the people just grew up. Oh, that's yeah. no fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because one of the one of the more popular posts I did was "When Thirty Was Old" was the mm-hmm. title, uh, because so much of what happened in those early days, since the industry just started, you know, there weren't people who had time in, in the career you know everyone just sort of learned it and they were all in their 20s and so they're you know they're not quite mature and just doing stupid stuff and laughing about it and so now you know those those same people are still around as well as all the new people that have come in so the average age has drifted up and i think mm-hmm. there's a little bit more maturity that comes with that and, and have these older guys taken the younger engineers under their wings and kind of mentored them yeah, absolutely. It's it's not something you can just sort of pick up and get real good at without that, I think. Yeah, you gotta you gotta burn your fingertips and do a lot of crappy designs first. Yep. Yep. And you know, we're we're pretty good about that as far as bringing people in and, and attaching them to senior engineers. You gotta learn some way and that, that seems to be working. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very interested in engineering education and I'm curious what if you have any thoughts on what the schools could be doing better to prepare engineers for the, uh, the workforce. Yeah, I think, I think we all have that conversation it's certainly changing. There's a lot less analog being taught. 
Um, you know, in, in a practical sense, the, the schools have to do, uh, you know, they're, they're marketing as well. They're serving um, a demographic. And if there's not the demand, they're not going to put the classes in front of them. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, to, to use a bad phrase, it is what it is. But what if it were, you know, I don't know, I'm, you know, it's not really my area, but it seems like people learn by doing and there seems to be less labs because uh, it's expensive to put this kind of lab together and run a curriculum. You know, there's a lot of instrumentation. There's a lot of things you have to do mm-hmm. and make available to the students so they can, you know, burn their fingers with soldering irons and learn how things work. And so one of the things that I like, um, you know, is, is the whole Maker Faire movement. Um, I also like uh, Arduino boards and Raspberry Pi boards and things like that, um, where people can actually touch and, and, and build things. I think that's inherently interesting, and there's quick feedback if it doesn't take too long. But you need a, a project board somehow, with everything being so tiny nowadays and all surface mount, you know, you can't really dead bug, air wire uh, a couple of dip baits and, and make a circuit, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you need some kind of vehicle like that, uh, that people can play with and build stuff and let them, you know, follow their own inspiration and that things and have them work. Yeah. You know, there's really nothing more fun than having something you thought of yourself and you sit down and you make it work. And, you know, even if you're just blinking an led, you know, it's really cool. It's really rewarding. Yeah. So, you know, you got to get that uh, in front of college students and, and probably even high school students uh, just to just to keep the whole thing going. But at the end of the day, you have to, you know, like you guys yeah. were saying in the opening, you know, analog's still here. It's never going to go away because you, you've got that wrapped around the digital, you know, the, the real world inputs and the real world outputs all need some analog. Yeah, you can't just send a square wave out at a gigahertz and expect to get to the other side intact. <laughs> yeah. And I think we lost a few years when everyone was writing apps, and that was the great thing. You know, if you had a phone, uh, you could write an app, you could make a display on the phone, do something. But the, the movement now, there's a lot of the, the Internet of Things, I, I think, will spawn a lot of creativity um, so people still are writing apps with their phones, but it's to make something else happen, you know, make the thermostat move, you know, is, is a nice thing. I'm, I'm wearing a, a Jawbone up 24 right now that counts steps, and does things like that. I don't know why. I just like data. And <laughs> like, oh, look at how many steps I took today. So eventually that'll get boring, but. You know, I, I guess they're making one for your dog so you can find out, you know, is your dog sleeping all day like you think he is or is he up walking around the house all day <laughs> when you're gone? So people have to build these things, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the idea of like this step counter, you know, well, how does it work? And so people are ripping them apart, but there's a lot to do with sensors. And when you've got sensors, then you've got to interface them to a microcontroller or, or some something yeah front end or what have you yeah so you need a radio and so get it back to your phone so there's still a lot of analog out there but it's all so darn tiny now 
You got you got to lure them into the analog side of things with the the Arduinos and the Raspberry Pis and all that stuff. Yeah, and you know the the Lego robotics stuff, the first robotics programs. Uh, they're, they're extremely popular. Yeah, Lego robots are how I got into engineering. It was one of my first projects at school. Yeah, and found I was more interested in why it worked than making it work. So then I started focusing on circuits, and here I am today. Yep, yep. So I think that's the path. You just need a lot of those kind of things, and you never know what's going to click for any individual kid. But if there's a spark, you know, fan the flames, get them going, and then he'll, he'll want to learn. And when there's that that want, then the rest of it will happen. Yeah. So as, as you know, a, a student or a maker or someone goes through their their path to becoming an engineer or a hobbyist and they're looking at the old app notes and maybe reading, you know, like Bob Pease's book or, or something, you know, they, they see all this history around them. Is that, is that important to make sure it's always there with them so they can understand where they've come from? Or what, what do you think the role of all this analog history and, you know, electronics history in general is? Um, you know, I, I struggled with it at first. Does anyone care? You know, is this just my own quirky interest? But you know, that's the beauty of the internet. If you've got a quirky interest, you know, you'll find a follower somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least half a dozen. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I write some of these things and then I, I send it to some of the guys uh, around me who I don't think are reading my blog, um, you know, because I think there's something interesting for them. And, and they both they all come back and say, oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Because, uh, you know, there's a bunch of young guys around me and I sent them the article when 30 was old. And just to remind them that, hey, you're in your mid-20s, but that doesn't mean you can't create an entire industry all by yourself and do it in less than a year. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's other things that I've found and I, I kind of want to make sure that I, I convey the context of the times when we're talking about something like this as... You know, with today's technology, if you look at uh, an old op amp that was designed in the in the 60s or 70s, you know, it's got like 20 transistors and it's not really that complex. And you think, well, you know, this this did so few things and had so many quirks. And but the the context of the day was that nothing existed. There were no simulation tools. There was really only a digital process that wasn't even capable of making an op amp. And somebody had the idea of, I want to build this thing and I have to invent the process to do it in. I have to invent the tools to do it in. I've got to take an exacto knife and carve out the masks myself. <laughs> and, you know, the, the message in there is there, even though this stuff doesn't look complicated when you look back on it, it was, done in a time when it was quite an accomplishment to do that. And these guys didn't ask permission to do this. They just did it. Uh, if they needed to, uh, needed a piece of equipment that didn't exist, they just made it, you know? So it's kind of liberating, I hope, for, for some of the people who are reading this stuff and didn't know the history to think that, yeah, everything's possible. You can just build it all and you don't let anything stop you. And the other wrinkle in there is how fast people did it. You know, they did everything. They wrote their own data sheets. They designed their own chips. A lot of these guys laid their own chips out because they didn't have a 
you know, a staff of layout people to, to hand it to. There were no LVS. You know, you never knew if you hooked it up right until you built it. Um, and if it didn't work right, you, you figured out why and you tweaked the process. You know, I, I have this image of the, the guys who founded Fairchild, you know, the traitorous eight walking into their building in Mountain View that they just rented and it's completely empty. And they're saying, well, we're going to manufacture transistors here and eventually invent the IC. And there's nothing, you know, there's no running water. There's nothing. And you don't just go down the street and buy uh, a reactor and start fatting wafers, you know, and slicing them up and processing them. None of that existed. So they bought tubes, pipes, and started making stuff. You know, it's just unbelievable. And they had working chips to sell to the government in, in a year, which, you know, they sold them even though they hadn't built one yet. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good good message. Details, yeah. <laughs> but that, that still happens, too. People sell stuff they haven't built yet. No comment. <laughs> and how important do you, you know, obviously, obviously these guys were very smart, so in their success, do you rate, you know, was it extreme self-confidence or was it a renegade approach or just these guys were brilliant and they could have done it regardless? Um, clearly, these were a rare set of people. They were, were definitely brilliant. Um, could they could they have done it? I, I asked some of the, the guys and I try to figure out the question for myself. Could they have done it in a different time, you know, 20 years earlier, 20 years later? Would these same people have done these amazing things? And, you know, that's an impossible question to ask. But uh, I, I think a lot of the guys uh, were just really good at learning. You know, they're really smart to begin with, but they're processed and learned so quickly that they invented things and could see the possibilities and it just sort of expanded, you know, right in front of them. So the fact that they had to invent the process meant that they really understood process technology. Um, a lot of the Fairchild guys weren't circuit guys at all. You know, they were just making a transistor, so it wasn't really circuit design. But, you know, Bob Weidler, uh, as, as an exception to almost every rule there is, um, <laughs> you know, he was just able to, to see things that no one else could see. You know, everyone... Uh, op amps existed before he came along, but they were made with vacuum tubes, you know, the old Philbrook op amps with a, a couple of tubes in there. And so that was, you know, you mentally substitute uh, silicon transistors for the vacuum tubes, and then you need the resistors and you hook them up in a certain way and you, you get an op amp function. And so that's what people were trying to do in silicon. And Weidler just looked at that and said, but why? You know, and let's let's figure out what's inherently what inherently happens in silicon. You know, the resistor tolerances are like fifty percent, so there's no way you could could get resistors in there of the value you wanted, and they'd be massive anyway. But um, things inherently match in silicon, so by matching ratios instead of trying to get absolute value, you know, he got a lot of that figured out. And he commandeered, you know, Dave Talbert as a process engineer to just together teach each other what they needed to know. So uh, whenever Bob Weidler came along, 
you know, whatever was the most challenging technology at the time, I think he would have mastered and, and changed. <laughs> Probably so. Now, now these, uh, these businesses that, that sprung up, I mean, linear technology and before that you were talking about Fairchild. Did these gentlemen have any real business background or did they just have an uncanny sense of where the money needed to be spent and where, you know, what they needed to do to bring the, the money in? Um, you know, obviously some of them had really good business sense. Um, it seems like in, in all of these successful scenarios, there's a core group of people and they each have a, a skill to bring to the party. Um, for linear, you know, Bob Swanson was an operations guy and he could, he could tell how to make money. That was his gift. You know, he was a very good organizer, very good motivator. He wasn't a circuit designer, but he understood, um, how to manufacture silicon. And his partner in crime was Bob Dobkin, who was, you know, a disciple of, of Weidler. So he, you know, in my mind, he's almost as brilliant as Weidler. Dob can all say he's Weidler's a genius. No one else is, but you know, together Dob can come up with the circuit ideas, make them happen. And Swanson would ask him enough questions to figure out, is this really the one to build first? And, um, what do we have to do and how much can we sell it for? And, and how do we sell it? And he's just got a, a really good sense of asking the right questions and, and drilling to the right answer. Um, so with, with other companies, it's the same set of, of circumstances. I think, you know, with them, um, with Maxim, a lot of those guys came out of Intercell. So Jack Gifford was, uh, on, he was in my mind, the, the business side of things. He was, he was very solid technically, but you know, his, his gift was again, product selection. Um, is this a part that there's a market for? Uh, he's, he's had a good sense of how to market the parts, uh, a very good motivator, a very good leader. And then he had Dave Fulliger, you know, as, as another brilliant designer who could come up with the ideas. And they, but, you know, there were a lot of guys working together. So their model was a little bit different. You know, it wasn't just one guy coming up with one chip. They, they had, uh, applications and design working together to kind of talk about problems and solutions to problems. So everybody's got that kind of a thing, you know, where there's a handful of people, some of them are business people, some of them are technical people. Uh, there's probably examples of really strong technical people who didn't get a good business partner and, and the, and the companies didn't make it. Yeah. It's, it's always a challenge to, uh, find the person has that business insight and, and, uh, knows, knows when to make promises. I, my, my sense is always when you're going out, especially with new products, you have to make some promises that you don't absolutely know you're going to be able to deliver on. And, uh, the, the businesses that survive are those that, uh, either get lucky or have a pretty good sense of what they can deliver on. So I'm always impressed by those who, uh, who start these businesses and, uh, know when to bend their, know when to bet the ranch and know when to, uh, uh, to pass. Yeah. Timing's got a lot to do with it. You, you have to be there at the right time with the right product. Sometimes you can be there too early and it, and it hurts. And sometimes you come in, you know, a week late and it's just too late. Yeah. Timing's everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think, uh, in, uh, 
one of the posts I wrote about Bell Labs and Western Electric, uh, there's some controversy about the, the telephone patent, which everyone associates with Alexander Graham Bell. And he got to the patent office, um, I forget if it was hours or days, but just barely ahead of someone else. And it was the timestamp that gave him the patent over somebody else. Wow. Yes, and I can't remember who that other guy was, and neither can history. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> but I wrote it down somewhere because I did find his name. It's, a, it's another post in and of itself, the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of uh, your, your blog here, you know, you, you obviously want to talk about the big characters, Widler and Dobkin and Nelson and everybody, but uh, you also talk about a little, you know, obscure topics like uh, an amplifier Einstein had built and uh, one that I kind of liked because it took place here in North Carolina, the story of computer labs that eventually became analog devices. Um, how do you get the idea for those articles? Do you just start doing research? They come up as like an interesting you know, bit of trivia and then you chase it down as far as it goes or. Yeah, pretty much that way. You know, I don't go out looking for these things because I like you, I don't know the story until I find it. Um, but yeah, I'll be researching somebody and there'll just be some reason that I, I say, well, I don't quite get that or, or there's a, a phrase and I'll just look that up. And if Wikipedia doesn't have it, I'll go somewhere else and just find some story. And if, if I think it's interesting, you know, I'll write it up. So, you know, there's, there's things that I want to get to. Um, I still want to write up, uh, analog devices cause they're, they're founding as a semiconductor entity is, is interesting. Um, are they in Silicon Valley or are they in Boston? Uh, in, in, in Boston. Okay. So there was, um, you know, there's several centers of things, but, uh, MIT is central to a lot of what I wind up writing about. You know, I didn't plan it to be that way, but it turns out that way. So because of what was going on, uh, in World War II, uh, a lot of things were developed at MIT. So it drew in a lot of people. And then after war, after the war, those people spun back out. And a lot of them are, are in the area. So. You know, analog devices didn't start out as a semiconductor company. They started out as a, a module company. They made vacuum tube op amps and, and other kinds of things. So their transition into semiconductors was, was interesting. I also want to write up uh, you know, Bob Pease. is an interesting character, and, and most of us think of him only as that crazy guy who writes the crazy columns. But, you know, he worked for Philbrook making vacuum tube op amps and, and VOF converters and things like that uh, in, in the vacuum tube era. And then he moved into uh, the silicon era and he designed, he was an IC designer as well. And he moved into applications and, you know, he's mostly famous for writing his columns and his books and things and, and just being a little, little offbeat. But... You know, he did a lot of circuit design and is a, a common connection to a lot of people. Yeah, he's, he's definitely one of the more well-known ones. There's seems can't go more than two or three clicks through a, an engineering, electrical engineering site without referencing P's. Yeah. One of his app notes or books or, you know, whatever he did. His book about driving into and out of accidents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, because when I was at National, um, you know, I didn't realize how famous he was, but I looked forward every year to his list of abandoned cars that he spotted on the roadside. Because he would keep a piece of paper in his Volkswagen, and whenever he lived in San Francisco and drove down to Silicon Valley every day, so he would just make a note of every type of car that was on the side of the road. And he was fairly accurate. I don't actually know how accurate he was, but he did try to um, figure the make and the model. And, and so then he would rank them. You know, at the end of the year, I saw 114, you know, Chevy Novas or whatever he saw. So that was always <laughs> an interesting thing. Yeah, there's a, I think EDN's got that article where he talks about doing that on their uh, their site archive somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're I'm certainly thankful that people like EDN capture that stuff. Yeah, you, good luck finding it on their site though. Trying to search <laughs> is easier said than done, even with the exact title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they recently changed their bookmark system, unfortunately, so all my old bookmarks don't work anymore. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, the links are all broken. Yeah. But they're, they're still there if you dig around uh, for anyone who's interested. Yeah. I, I back to your question about seeking small stories. You know, I put a lot, of, a lot of effort into trying to track down this guy, Mark Garcia. Um, Mike Garcia, who owned this restaurant called By the Bucket. Uh, because Dobby told me that when Weidler brought the sheep to National to, to eat the grass in the yard, that that's where they took it. And uh, Weidler's brother, Jim, who I've met through this process, um, said, no, it was this other bar called Marchetti's and Building M, as they called it. And, you know, so now I'm stuck with, with two people who are credible, who say different things. And so I asked Dobby, well, you know, Jim Weidler says it's this other place. And he says he wasn't there. It's like, okay. <laughs> so I figured I'd break the tie by finding the guy who owned the restaurant. And so that wound up being a much more difficult task than I thought. And so I eventually gave up and said, I'll just trust that Dobby's right. <laughs> oh, maybe one day you can, you can find him. He'll surface somewhere. Yeah. yeah I, I did have a thought. You had talked earlier about the, not difficulty, but the process that linear technology had to go through as more software was getting introduced into uh, what were traditionally analog uh, components. And I thought that that process might be of interest to our engineers that are in other fields. That is, you know, mechanical engineers and civil engineers, aeronautical engineers, chemical engineers. Uh, more of our world is being driven by code. More of our world is being driven by having to uh, at least pass the information through electronics. And I just, uh, I wondered if you had any insights on the fact that, that sooner or later we sort of have to give in to the software, that, that that's where technology is taking us. And we do our craft of engineering through the code and through the, uh, through the digital, uh, interface that the world seems, seems to present us. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly, Part of being an engineer is uh, engineers solve problems as compared to scientists who investigate um, new things. And, and as engineers, we're taught to find the, the simplest or least expensive solution to a problem. And, mm -hmm. you know, in the old days, 
when a transistor cost forty dollars, you, you didn't use many of them. You found other ways of doing it, and now transistors are effectively free, and so it's it's cheap to get digital processing power, and so that's that's the way you have to go to solve the problem, and I don't see any any change in that. So so that's I think inevitable. Um, I also think it's inevitable that the the internet will be a place or the cloud is a place where they'll send information to be processed. Um, so it gets kind of unwieldy. You know, it's, it's a big task when you start to look at it that way. If you're a guy who wants to build a widget and you think, oh, I have to be able to upload this to the cloud, how am I going to do this? But uh, back to things like the Raspberry Pi or little boards like that, um, they've, they've done a really good job of making those things easy to use you do have to learn to program or at least hire someone who does. And if like all the other examples, if you find somebody you've got a good relationship with and they can understand what you do and you can understand what they do and together you can, you know, figure out a good solution to the problem. You know, the, the guys that we've got who are analog engineers who happen to like writing code, you know, they're just amazing because they do it all the time. Yeah, and that, those are the kind of guys you want, is the guys who just live and breathe this thing, and it becomes very intuitive to them. And they say, all right, we want to do this, so hack, 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 hack. There's some code that'll do that, and compile and say, yeah, there, there you go. And so, you know. I, so the skills are not exclusive. You've, you've got uh, designers that uh, are just as comfortable designing in code as they are in, uh, in silicon. Yeah, Absolutely. And it's, um, you know, I think it's just like what got us all here. You know, it's a curiosity about something. You know, when you were a teenager, you, you didn't really have an awareness of the difference between digital and analog electronics. You know, it was just electronics. And it was really just a thing that when you opened it up and looked at it, you wondered why, how it worked. And you figured out a way to poke around until you learned how it worked. And in doing so, you got smarter. And if that was fun for you, you followed it. And so the guys who who get these boards and uh, a programming environment, you know, they they learn how to program. It's you know, if it's fun, they do things at home. They figure out how to annoy their sister or something when they're a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that part of growing up hasn't changed over the years. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't think there's anything about being a mechanical engineer, you know, since on paper, at least I am one, um, that prevents you from programming or, you know, doing thermal dynamics or, or doing circuit design. Yeah. And there's a lot of crossover with uh, electrical engineering and mechanical, too. If you think you could be a good circuit designer without understanding heat transfer somewhat, uh, you're sadly mistaken. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a bit of uh, just, you know, once once you start looking at metal layers, you know, and the foundry processes where they've got so many metal layers, you know, so there is a mechanical aspect of that. You can't stack too many and, and expect to, to drop down without the risk of thermal expansion causing a, a crack, you know, so you've got a reliability problem. Or wondering how the die sits in a package and can it take this kind of stress from repetitive loading and... All sorts of fun stuff. 
Yeah. And the whole world of packaging seems to be changing quite rapidly at the moment. Oh, yeah. You know, for so long, it was just ceramic dips moved to plastic dips, but it didn't really change the way people worked with them. And surface mount was just sort of dips with the leads squashed out. Um, <laughs> but now, you know, they're doing so many things with packages. Chip yeah. scale packages and everything, which is pretty much just bare silk and thrown onto your board. Yeah. I remember... Uh, I was involved with this project where we stack some dye on top of each other inside the package. And, you know, we, we built it, proved it could work. And then we went to reliability and asked the guys, okay, what kind of qualification plan do I need to, to qualify this particular chip the way I built it? And they said, well, you can't do that. It won't work. <laughs> and I said, well, one, I built it and it does. And two, that USB memory stick that you have in your pocket has seven memory die stacked on top of each other. And they looked at me and said, no, <laughs> but I, but I'd seen it, you know, they have rectangular die with uh, the pads coming off the, the short ends. So they put one down, bond it, and then put the next one down, um, 180 or 90 degrees from it and bond it the other direction and just keep stacking them until they get enough memory. Because if they wanted to do a memory chip that had the capacity that, you know, a, a multi-gigabit memory stick has now, that the die would be bigger than the stick. So they, so they stack them. It's amazing stuff they do. Yeah. I don't want to be the guy who has to run the crosstalk and interference tests. Yeah. <laughs> but they get it working somehow. Yeah, but I do love those those SEM photos of things. Oh, yeah. So mechanical guys just to see all the bond wires and and how perfectly they're bonded just just amazing stuff definitely so are you are you hopeful for the future then you know with everyone tinkering with uh the our arduinos and the raspberry pies and the maker movement and everybody getting excited about this this kind of stuff and being where you are in the industry does the future look bright or do you think the the glory days are behind us now, because of all that, there seems to be, you know, quite a shift where a lot of people are making stuff, and little electronic gadgets, gadgets, not gadgets. Uh, maybe some are, I don't know. <laughs> it could be gadgets if you wanted to. <laughs> if, if that's what you're into. Um, but certainly there's a lot of people doing things, getting excited about electronics. And, you know, it felt like for a while, uh, you know, we were getting older as an industry and now it feels like suddenly we're getting younger again because there's a lot of kids coming in who don't have any of the preconceived notions of, you know, we're going to build op amps and they're going to look like this. Yeah. They're just people who want to build stuff. And I think that's where it all comes from. So the excitement's definitely there. So I'm, yeah, I'm pretty optimistic about the future. I'm nodding. In case you can't see that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be able to pick that up. It'll show up loud and clear. So I, I don't know what kind of stats you keep on your, your site, but uh, do you know, is it mostly younger people who are uh, reading your blog, or is it more industry insiders that you've worked with? Have you got a lot of meaningful feedback from it? Um, with the tools I've got, I can't really get that kind of demographic. Um, I can sort of see what part of the world they're from, which is... You know, like you'd expect, almost all of it's United States, uh, but China, India, Germany, uh, you know, 
scattered about there. Uh, mostly Windows people, but, you know, a bunch of Mac people, but I can't tell young people, old people. Um, <laughs> I get very few actual written comments, you know, in the, in the questions. Um, but uh, the one that kind of struck me and, and gave me an awful lot of satisfaction was a short one. It just said, nice job. And it was from Bob Weidler's sister. Oh, wow. So she was actually out there. I guess her brother had told her what I was doing. I had actually contacted her at one point. And, you know, it's it, you forget about stuff like this. When you think of Bob Weidler or Bob Pease, for that matter, you know, you've got this character in your mind, but you forget that they've got family. You know, and there's other people who are impacted by what you say about their brother. And so it, it felt really good to to realize that she's seen what I'd done and, and she felt good about it. So, so that was really cool. Yeah. Definitely makes all the lead chasing and the, the fact checking worthwhile. Now when you get something like that. Yeah. And especially when I'm sitting here thinking that no one's reading it, you know, to find out that, <laughs> that there are people reading it. It's pretty you, cool. You have analog royalty reading it essentially. Yeah. And I get people at work who pass me in the hallway or in the cafeteria and say, you know, I, I just read that thing you just wrote. That was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I wound up on the engineering commons, which is unbelievable. Yeah. That's how you've made it big. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure my mom will be listening if she gets a computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I'm sure you'll they'll, they'll, the networks will pick you up now that you've been on our show and you'll have a, a TV show to talk about this kind of thing shortly. There you go. Yeah, by the end of summer or so, at the latest. Yeah, my, my teenage son keeps asking me if I'm making money by doing this. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. I'm doing it for the love of the history of these people. And Todd, does writing about these uh, people do, give you any kind of insight into their, you know, their thought pattern, or does it, you know, have you had any eureka moments where you go, ah, this explains why they, they did this the, the way they did? Uh, no, it's um, I, you know, I was obviously expecting something like that to find the secret, you know, <laughs> right? Um, and part of why I named this this blog Analog Footsteps was I. I thought I saw a pattern that um, between Stanford and MIT, uh, a lot of people actually literally walked the same sidewalks and went up the same steps of the same buildings and had the same footsteps. Right. Uh, and, you know, the more I look, it's like, dang, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, I, I find all these people and I, I dig into their stories and they're unique individuals. Um, some of these guys just happen to be at the right place at the right time and were really, really bright, but they, they aren't eccentric or they aren't totally obsessed with analog. You know, they just, it was a good job. They wound up at the right place at the right time. They cranked out some good stuff and they got famous for it, but that isn't what defines them. You know, there's, um, like Nello, you know, he was, uh, um, a world-class athlete and, you know, he wanted to do control systems and uh, he wound up not going to Stanford or MIT, but he went to Santa Clara University because they had world-class controls 
people there, people who did you know, the Apollo moon launch kind of control systems. Which was still a lot of analog back in those days, too, I'm sure. Yeah, but he, he wound up coming out of that not as an IC designer. He, yeah. he came out because, you know, he needed a job. And a friend said, well, I think these people are hiring. Here, I'll tell you how to answer the question so you can get the job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so he got the job, and uh, he, he needed more money. So his, his old school asked him if he would teach op-amp circuit design. And he wasn't an op-amp circuit designer, but he said, well, I can teach, so I'll learn enough to teach. And he taught, and then he figured, well, I can teach, and maybe I can do this. So he got, that's what got him into the IC design <laughs> side of things. It's the, the opposite of the old saying, those who can't do teach, he went the other way. <laughs> yeah, and so it's just a really uh, different path, you know, not something you'd expect. Um, mm -hmm. So... You, you keep finding different stories like that. There, certainly there are the classic stories of kids who were, you know, five, seven years old, taking apart their TV and putting it back together and, and learning things that way and skipping college because they knew it all already. Um, but there's other stories that come from entirely different directions, mm -hmm. you know, which I also think is, is good for um, any of your listeners, you know, and, and students of any discipline is, you know, it doesn't really define you where, where your path starts out. You know, you just go to what's interesting to you. And sometimes it's as simple as I need to make more money and my girlfriend lives over there. So I'm going to move to that town. And what do they do here? Okay, I can do that. You know, so you just, you go where you go and you just try hard and work hard and do what you're interested in. And, and the rest sort of happens sometimes. Yeah, luck sort of, uh, weaves its way into one's life from time to time. Yep. And, and a lot of these guys, um, you know, some of these guys had terrible marriages because they were so obsessed with, with engineering. And some of these guys were totally immersed in their family. And, you know, this is what they did for eight hours a day. And they just happened to be really good at it. But they, they were more about their family or some other pursuit outside of work. Yeah. yeah. Right. Bob Pease was a pretty big mountain climber or hiker. Yeah, and uh, Jean Hernay, the guy who invented the, the planar process at Fairchild, he was a big mountain climber, you know, like the Himalayas and, and mm -hmm. big mountains like that. And, you know, Jack Gifford, uh, I, I know he was, I, I forget if he was ever drafted by a professional baseball team, but he, he played uh, played college baseball at UCLA and was a lifelong fan had his own minor league team while he was running Maxim called the Maxim Yankees. <laughs> wow. And he did occasionally play first base for him and, and be a DH. So yeah, everyone's into everything. I, I think there's a, a future blog post on uh, cars of the analog guys. So I know once, once they started getting money, a lot of these guys had some really cool cars. I'd like to see that one. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to find that stuff on the internet, though. <laughs> That's a good question. You may have to go to the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles and start searching their records. Yeah. yeah. Scrape the parking lots for any rubber left over. <laughs> yeah, because I worry, you know, that's one of those fish story kind of things. If you if you ask, you know, who had the coolest car, and you start asking the guys who I, I have contacts with, you know, they might sort of invent things that weren't actually true. <laughs> 
I had a Model S back in 1980. <laughs> I went 400 miles an hour down El Camino. Well, Carmen, we're getting, uh, we're probably getting uh, deep into the evening here for uh, uh, for Todd as well as uh, for us. Uh, maybe you'd like to sort of start bringing this thing to a conclusion. Uh, not really sure. It's so many good wrapping up points. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I kind of think we've said what we need to. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking over my notes just to see if there was something I wanted to say. Yeah. I, I do the think floor we, is yours. Feel free. I do think we covered it all. Um, A lot of good information here. One, one of the things that I wrote down, um, you know, on the, on the topic of the college education curriculum and are we generating more analog students, and great place to end it. It's one of our favorite topics. <laughs> yeah, I, I mentioned the things that I like about, you know, Arduino boards, Raspberry Pi boards, and anything that gets people to build stuff. And I, I think um, as much as, you know, I'm about analog footsteps and I'm deep in the analog world, I, I think it's a good thing if the industry kind of blurs that line and loses the distinction uh, between analog and digital and software and and for that matter even mechanical and thermal and and the other disciplines you know and, and just sort of pulls it back into just being engineering and you know what's the best solution to a problem and you know that kind of i i would think you know if you can get people who aren't so worried about oh i've crossed over a boundary and and now i can't take these classes because it's outside of my my degree program, you know, if we can not have that be a barrier and, and just let people build stuff and learn what they have to learn to build it and find the best solution for it. You know, that's in my mind, what engineering is about is just finding the best solution, no matter where it is. As long as you're getting new skills and adding tools to your toolbox to use on the next problem. I mean, is it can't really say you're wasting your time then, even though it doesn't fit a set curriculum. Yeah. And it's always been about learning how to learn, right? So if there's some new thing that comes along, I mean, certainly there's a discipline that hasn't been invented yet. And, you know, 10 years from now, there'll be something new that a lot of people will have to pick up. And if if you're good at learning new stuff and going wherever the solution looks like it'll have a benefit to you, then I think it's a good thing. Don't be afraid to chase down those wild ideas. Just because they look hard. That's right. And sometimes, you know, the solution is, is way back in history or something really simple. It's hard to imagine people bring back vacuum tubes, but, you know, the, the, <laughs> the guys who make audio amps are still still studying the, the old vacuum tubes. I'm sure there's a lot of nice tricks that could still be had there. Little biasing schemes or what have you. Yeah. Well, I, th I think you captured it earlier, Todd, when you said that if you get a, uh, a youngster interested in engineering or just, you know, curious about the world around them, uh, then that's often enough to ignite a, a passion for engineering or a passion for building or a passion for making. Yeah. And, and as a parent, don't scold them for taking something apart. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you really, really like that item. Yep. yep. So there's char marks on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Just encourage them. <laughs> it, it sounds good. I don't practice my own advice, but it's really good advice. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Todd, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, it was great talking to you and 
hearing about the old days of analog. Uh, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Yes, and uh, look forward to many more articles that you're going to put out in the near future, I'm sure. Yeah, feel free to send me ideas if you want. To, I'll, I'll gladly go look up anything and, and pursue it and see if there's a, a good article there. All right, you might regret that, but I'll take you up on it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if somebody has that idea and wants to contact you, uh, where should we send them? Let's see. I think I think on the on the blog on the analogfootsteps.blogspot.com uh, that I, I accept emails through that channel. Uh, okay. That that goes right into my Gmail account. Okay, and you're also Terrific. on Twitter too uh, at analogfootsteps. Yes, that's how you found me. Yes, it was. Yes, because I didn't have my email enabled on my, my blog at that point. <laughs> see, see how things work? Bringing about change. That's right. <laughs> Terrific. Well, we'll, we'll send uh, people your direction with their brilliant ideas for new blog posts. And uh, one, once again, wanted to thank you for spending your time with us here on the Engineering Commons. Uh, thank you again. Okay. Have a good evening. All right. Thanks, thanks Todd. Good night. night. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.